0: Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hi, and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I'm delighted to welcome John, Ollie, and Max. Can I ask you all to introduce yourselves, tell us what you do at Software, and an interesting fact about yourselves?
1: Yes. So I'm John. I'm the head of consulting at Softwire. An interesting fact about me is that I'm in the process of trying to do a load of home automation stuff at the moment and coming up against some interesting human challenges in doing so.
0: As we will be finding out later, have you got an interesting fact not related to today's podcast?
1: Yes, I believe I'm the only person other than maybe you, Zoe, who's been in all five of Software's pantomimes.
0: Woohoo, great facts. I'm glad I pressed for, for more uh, <laughs> a more trivial fact.
2: Ollie. So I am Ollie. I am a tech lead at Software. I'm currently the tech lead on the support team. When I'm not at work and we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I spend most of my time in theaters doing lighting and backstage things.
0: Cool. And Max.
3: Hello, I am Max. I am a senior consultant at Softwire. I have studied to various levels at least 10 martial arts in my life.
0: Including, I don't know if this is actually classified as a martial art. I was going to say, this is what I always think of as the most exciting fact, that including cheerleading, is that right? That's
3: not a martial art.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <Yeah. laughs> but is something that you that you do?
3: I have done, yes.
0: Awesome. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Kubernetes and FAS, which stands for Functions as a Service, and is also known as Serverless. And we're joined today by John, who, as he mentioned, he is co-presenting with me today because he wants to find out for his own purposes about these topics. So John, tell us a bit more about that.
1: Thanks, Zoe. Well, confession time. I have not actually written very much code over the last two or three years at Software. And I feel like this whole new wave of Kubernetes and serverless functions has kind of passed me by. I hit up against a bit of a problem that I'm trying to solve at home at the moment, where it felt like these new techs might be a really nice solution. So I thought I might come and hijack this podcast with you and try and get some free education from Max and Ollie on the subject. So the short answer is. I am having problems in that I've just put in a lovely new home automation heating system, but my one-year-old has figured out how to turn on the radiators. This means that all of a sudden the house gets very hot. What I really want to do is find some way of automatically running a load of Python scripts that make sure that she's not fiddling with the heating and if she does fix it.
0: That, I think, sets the scene. And we have cloud experts, Max and Ollie, who are here to answer all of John's questions. So, John, please take it away and ask whatever it is that you think will help with your challenge.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Suri. As I understand it from all of the marketing materials, the promise of both Kubernetes and serverless is that it makes it really easy to run your code in an environment without having to worry about setting up servers or faffing around with, with Linux. And what I really want to know is how do I go about Getting some Python scripts to run reliably and on a schedule, and also in response to things like APIs being called or, or messages being sent. And should I be using Kubernetes or some serverless technology like Lambda? What are the pros and cons and pitfalls? And really, where I'm at with this is that I'm very happy to spend a weekend on going a bit over top over the top on infrastructure and setting this up. But once that's done, what I really want is something that runs reliably. I want something that is really easy to deploy to when I want to actually change the scripts I've written. Uh, and I also want uh, to know about it when things go wrong. So like I said, the hot things here appear to be Kubernetes and, and functions like Lambda. Do you want to start by just quickly giving me an overview of the strengths and weaknesses of, of both of those one of you
2: so i mean the facetious answer is if you want something simple and reliable cron is brilliant um <laughs> the answer to your actual question around what do kubernetes and what do lambda get you so kubernetes lets you run applications across a set of servers without you needing to worry too much about those servers and how things are distributed and then building on top of that there's a load of primitives that it has around networking, distributing load between services, and distributing things on specific machines or kind of certain failure modes. There's things that can memorize on top of Kubernetes like OpenFAS, which then get you a platform like Lambda, where you stop caring at all about the computers underneath it. And for Lambdas, you basically say, Amazon, please run me this service or run me this code, and I'd like to trigger on these events but I don't really care how it runs and what happens. And you get billed per second of compute. Um, And it's up to Amazon to figure out how you run that at scale or how you charge people for it. So Lambda sits at one really extreme end where you basically stop caring at all about computers and you just say, I'd like some CPU time, please. Kubernetes sits somewhere in the middle where you stop caring about each individual machine, but you still have to know that there is compute capacity underneath you and you know that there are certain bits of resource that you care about and then having an actual just a Raspberry Pi or whatever, under the stairs running Cron, it's the other end of the extreme from FAS.
1: So I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there when you say, I don't really want to care particularly about computers, or at least once I've set it up, I don't really want to care and go and change Cron tabs and things like that. So take, take me through how the dream works out in practice then. So imagine I've written three or four Python scripts that I want to be running, say, on a regular schedule. How do I go about doing that with Lambda or some other function service?
3: Can I first check whether your home has a direct pipe to Amazon? <laughs> it has an internet connection, Max, but unfortunately no privileged access. Oh, no, that'll do, that'll do. So, mm-hmm. uh, And you're happy with powering your home using compute resources far, far away instead of a Raspberry Pi under the stairs? Well, this, this is an interesting question. What are the drawbacks
1: of tying myself to Amazon? If I build this on Lambda, does that lock me in in some way?
3: Not particularly. It's more the concern of how exposed you want your home network to be but that's not really uh what we're discussing here i guess
0: it is a great question though and it's good to always be thinking about these things right if one of the things that people might not consider when deciding to use a, a web service is that you are now shipping the data outside of the premises so it's a good question although yeah <laughs> not, not exactly perhaps what John wanted to hear. Yes, I think you can, you
1: can safely assume from my perspective that there's no no particularly sensitive data other than the temperature of my living room.
3: Fine, or you can have a third-party thing ship the data safely, which is actually what I've got running in my house. But that's that the point. Okay, let's assume you are happy with your data being processed in the Amazon ecosystem and then there is a pipe of some description that can feed the data back to your house. In which case, I guess for a couple of Python scripts, it's absolutely very simple to do it on AWS. You've got your script written. I think there are a few rules it has to follow. So it must have certain inputs and certain outputs, but they're fairly loose and flexible. What sort of things are you talking about then? So for for inputs and
1: outputs, what, what sorts of things do I need to think about?
3: So for example, a Lambda requires, well, it's, it's a function and a function needs zero or more inputs Say you want, you know, it does something to do with your heating. It, some input might be the status of your thermostat, the temperature, whether it's on or off, that sort of thing. You can encode all of that into a you know, a JSON blob and send it to Amazon and it will push that through into your Python code quite happily. So that's if you trigger it, say, via REST API, which you can do.
1: And what about just on a timer? Can I, can I make it run a Lambda every minute, for example?
3: There is a separate AWS service called, I think it's called sh- just Scheduler which can then trigger your Lambda directly or can trigger it via SNS or SQS or something like that if you want to be a bit more decoupled for whatever reason. So taking a step back for a second, how do I actually get my code onto Lambda? By the console is probably the easiest way if you just have a few scripts at home. So if you log into AWS, the AWS console, we go to the Lambda page. There is, You can just edit the code directly in situ. That's the easiest, most manual way to get things going, where you don't have to have any deployment scripts or anything like that.
1: So, what about if I do want to do to do some kind of push? Say, say I'm using Git to source control my scripts, and I want to just push the latest version. Is there some wizzy way that I can get Lambda to update itself?
3: Ish. Lambda can also pull code from S3. So, if you have an S3 bucket with your code to which you can push from your Git repo during the deployment process, say you can say push your code to that bucket. And then tell, uh, tell Lambda to update the function and it will refresh its code from the bucket.
2: So you can also do just using the AWS CLI script that and push to the Lambda with that new script version. I think there's a, it's kind of an interesting question of in general, these are you push rather than Lambda pulls itself down. But you should be able to automate it and make it go a little bit more magical.
1: So I've got to confess, looking at the Brave New World, that sounds slightly on the janky side. So how would you do this at production scale? Let's imagine you're doing a big old Lambda build in the real world. How do you deploy to Lambda?
3: Now, at production scale, this this becomes a much more interesting question because you're likely to have interactions with many, many other cloud services I mean, first of all, we're saying we're using Lambda as a synonym for functions in the cloud. Like, right? It doesn't have to be AWS, because you know, Azure has its functions, Google Cloud has its functions, which will behave very similarly. So yeah, so you might have your functions triggered by you know, SQS, SNS topics, API Gateway. It could be all manner of things connected to each other in wonderful ways. In which case, this is a problem with all function-as-a-service platforms right now. I've not seen anyone do this nicely you will have a coupling between your code and your infrastructure, which is somewhat fiddly to separate. There are attempts to make it it better, to improve it somewhat, such as Amazon gives you SAM out of the box, which allows you to hook up your Lambda code to infrastructure in a nice way. There's a product called Serverless, which does the same sort of thing. But then you still have to bridge the gap between infrastructure and code deployment at some point. And there's always that little bit of unpleasantness there.
1: So it sounds like this isn't this isn't a thing where we've got a well defined pattern for promoting code and doing kind of mass deployment of lambdas at this stage.
2: The way that we've done it on some customers is generally building things as containers, putting them in a container registry, and then deploying that out from a pipeline. So containerizing it has some costs in that you add an extra step, but it has benefits around things like we can do security audits of the containers and we can verify what code is going to run in those. And then you have an immutable artifact that can be run on a test environment and then run in a production environment without any changes in it which gives you better guarantees of what you're testing and deploying. As with almost all of these things, there's, you end up with some cost to it. So having a pipeline like that is some more things to maintain and some more complexity. And you are somewhat tied to the exact implementation of that and how the service changes underneath you.
1: So that's, that's interesting. You've started talking about containers there. So how, how do containers interact with Lambda or the other serverless platforms? The serverless platforms let you run certain
2: things and the different providers have different runtimes that they natively support. And then they'll box those up in some way and distribute them across their underlying platform. And one of those fairly standard interfaces is a container. So it's relatively, container has a relatively defined entry point that lets you treat them in the same way. And there's basically a process that has a thing that you can run. So as Max said earlier, there's a kind of a standard interface that your, your function needs to expose. So like it needs to be be callable in some certain way that might be it exposes an http endpoint on a certain port that the underlying framework calls or it might be it takes a standard input on a from the console kind of thing and then responds and then puts it back out on standard output it's that kind of level of interface that gets defined and what that means is it's kind of regardless of what you actually implement your process using so long as it meets that interface so long as it lets you do those things from a runtime point of view then the platform doesn't really care and you could have a compiled go binary or a python script or a whatever else it is the containerization thing is it is a, a way of getting more control over the runtime environment than you get from the platform itself so if you're running say python i don't know for certain but i would. I would suspect AWS just lets you run some Python script straight up, but it'll be in whatever Amazon have decided is the appropriate Python environment. Whereas if you run it in a container, you could control that more yourself and you have more ability to kind of verify and validate that setup. But it adds some overhead in that you're running stuff in a container.
3: For example, in Python dependencies is the, uh, what well, a major difference. So, when you're running Lambdas, uh, you're very limited to what dependencies you can have. So, by dependencies, I mean it's like third party libraries. So, say you want to do a bit of scientific processing, say you want to uh, do some clever stats munging of your heating data just for fun, and you want to install something like NumPy, you won't be able to do that with Lambdas because they're compiled C compiled Python extensions, which Lambda does not support. But in a container, that would be absolutely fine because you control pretty much everything from the operating system upwards.
1: That's a really interesting point to note. So actually I can't just run any arbitrary Python in a Lambda. I'm quite limited in terms of what external libraries I can use. And that's definitely a pitfall I could see people falling into. Have fallen into. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably that's the same across whatever language or whatever whatever you're running in your Lambda.
3: I it should be depends on the language and what its limitations are. For example, JavaScript doesn't have compiled extensions. So Running JavaScript isn't as much of a problem, but there are other problems with it, I you.
2: But there are, there are some interesting things on, on JavaScript, for example. If you have node modules, lambdas have a significant performance degradation for large deployments. So we discovered that if you have a fairly simple bit of production code, but you have a lot of dependencies in your node modules, for example, you'll end up with very large lambda, which has a much slower startup time. And the solution to that is kind of selectively cull the files that you're submitting or figure out exactly how to produce the smallest Lambda, that's a somewhat surprising thing to hear.
3: That that, that was a fun little problem to solve. (laughs) I think both of those are quite interesting
1: limitations that might not be entirely obvious at first glance when you start thinking about using Lambdas. So you've mentioned then that the simplest way for me to go and get some Python code running as a Lambda is to log into the AWS console, paste some code in and say, like, respond to this API endpoint or even run it on the schedule. What about then if I decide I want to go and host my Python scripts and run them inside of Kubernetes? What's the simplest way for me to get my code running inside Kubernetes?
3: Well, the first question is why Kubernetes as opposed to any other platform, containerization platform rather? Because I'm susceptible to
1: marketing hype, and apparently Kubernetes is the new hotness and everyone's using it. And so obviously, when I see these problems, the the question is, can I make use of this? It sounds shiny.
3: You're a bit behind the timers and the hype. The hype (laughs) is now uh, Fargate, Google Cloud Run, and the Azure version.
2: But it's somewhat like a hybrid between Kubernetes and letting someone else figure out how your computers work. So they're containerization platforms that let you run things, but you stop caring about individual nodes or individual hardware.
1: I mean, so that sounds even more idyllic. So, I mean, let's imagine then I pick the newest, hypiest container solution of, of choice. How do I actually get my code running on there? What are, What's the simplest path to, to container nirvana?
2: You need to build a container for which, if it's Python, it's relatively simple. You can do that with a few lines in a Docker file. You'd need to publish your container to a container registry. Depending on how you care about it, you're probably fine to just shove it in a public registry because this is not, likely to be very sensitive but you can spin up within all of the different cloud providers have their own different ways of doing it but they basically store docker images or other oci images for you and then you need to write some magical manifest that lets it deploy that into the service and each of the different ways of running this will be slightly different in cloud run for example which is google's one there's a fairly simple set of interface that's basically build a container from this Git repository and automatically deploy it. And it'll deploy that on every commit or for a branch or something else, or you could also manually deploy it. For Azure Container instances, there's a very similar thing. I'm much less familiar with the AWS side of things.
3: Fargate is pretty much the same thing. I mean, it's, like I said, all it needs is a, a container and a manifest, which for reference just says, I want to run this Docker container with of this version, open these ports, scale it to, you know, someone between X and Y instances, call it this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically how we inter- how that container interact with the outside world.
1: Cool. It sounds like there's a, there's a certain kind of, it's, obviously there are several steps to that, but it sounds like it's a fairly well understood process. Just help me unpack that a little bit then. So when we talk about building a, a Docker image from my Python scripts, what is that? What goes into that image? Why is it necessary? A Docker image is
2: sort of like somewhere between just running your code natively on a machine and having a virtual machine. It is building up a layered layered file system of your various components and then it lets you run that within someone else on someone else's machine basically for what i think you'll end up needing you there are various public base images that have something like python or some other sets of dependencies and then you can add your dependencies onto that so if you're in max's example using numpy or something else you can install that as a dependency which would be a layer in your docker image and then you can pull down your code and run that and what a docker image defines is a Standard entry point, which is the thing that the runtime will call to actually operate on. So that's kind of within the Docker, within that image format, and that can get deployed to
1: any number of these cloud providers. So I was going to say that 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 sounds like quite a, an elegant solution, where I I take an off the shelf Docker image which has got say a Linux image that's got Python ready to go. I layer on top of that my little file system that has all of my scripts and say, here's an entry point, call this script and see what happens. And then I package that up into one of these Docker images, which I can then push somewhere. And that's then picked up by one of these container services. And it runs it based on whatever I've told it to run as part of that image. That sounds like much more of a foolproof and reproducible process than what you outlined on Lambda or serverless. Is is that a fair comparison to draw? Yes. So you can do that containerization and deploy to serverless, lambdas,
2: whatever. I think there's some hidden cost to it, which is that, so for example, for some of the smaller Docker base images, you end up using, so Alpine, for example, has a different C library to the more common standard C libraries, which ends up with some slightly interesting problems for certain libraries and certain systems that you're trying to use. There is a trade-off in that it's a smaller image. The other problem is that you end up, rather than just distributing your code, you're distributing effectively some Linux file system and Linux dependencies, which can quite significantly add to what you're trying to ship around and what you're doing. And if you basically trust that your vendor is going to run your Python script in a way that you want, you don't get a huge amount from that. There are certain scenarios. So you get the ability to control your dependencies a bit better, but it has a, there is a trade-off to that. It's not completely free.
3: It does give you the uh, the nice separation of concern between your code and your infrastructure. And in, what you again is much more applicable in large-scale enterprise environments. So like in your own little home heating system, you don't really need that as much because it's quite manageable all put together.
1: I think that's true. And I think you've, you've just described there, I think, quite a lot of the overhead inherent in using Kubernetes or any other kind of container service. So I guess one question of practicality for you grizzled container veterans is at what point this actually starts becoming useful, like how complex or bigger systems you have to be building for it to be worth paying the tax there?
2: I think containers become valuable, sensible at the point where you're trying to do things in lots of different languages and different tech stacks. So the ability to to deploy in exactly the same way a Java service, some things written in Go, an Nginx server hosting some static files, a PHP application. Like Once you've got a mix of different technologies that you want to be able to treat fairly easily and fairly similarly, then containerization makes that a lot easier at a kind of operational level, there is some additional burden to it. So the more you take on board, the more you... So for example, if you use, say, Kubernetes over... Like a hosted Kubernetes over hosted container runtimes, for example, you end up having to care about the nodes and your capacity and that kind of thing. And for a small team without that much operational support, it's overheady in a way that's not necessarily beneficial, where you end up... It's, it's more costly to pay Amazon or Google or Azure to host these things than it is to do them yourself. But that's probably cheaper in the long, like for a a small-ish team or a small set of operational
1: concerns and so other than the ability to treat kind of multiple different languages or frameworks or technologies as if they're the same kind of deployable unit what other stuff do you get for free out of the box because for example i was quite attracted by the idea that amazon could send me an email if my lambda fails for example what kind of things do you get out of the box with those platforms that might help tip the balance a bit towards using them
3: it depends on the platform to be honest the hosted container services so cloud run fargate azure container services they all have their own feature sets about you know, exactly what they support in terms of you know auto-scaling, networking, et networking etc cetera. but um in my experience i found these to be less flexible than kubernetes for better or for worse so with kubernetes you get it's it's definitely more complex in terms of your manifests and all that sort of stuff but you do get a lot more freedom with how you use the service, I guess. Because there are lots of extension points. So the things Kubernetes called operators, which allow you to customize not how what like what happens to your code as opposed to in the way that's greater than your code just runs. <laughs> it's quite hard to describe. For example, what there is an operator that's that can automatically connect to GitHub. It can poll it for changes or we can connect the book to it and it will then deploy your code straight from github into a pod whenever it updates without having to do it yourself for
1: example Oh, yeah, So looking at this a different way, then Max, I have I have personally observed you solve various tricky engineering challenges using both like AWS and GCP containers. What are the things that you've been really glad for in that journey? What when have you thought, ah, I get that for free? That's really useful. Or when have what the cloud providers have given you made your life dramatically easier?
3: I keep talking about auto scaling, which is a fairly soft problem by now. You'd think. I'm not sure if it still is on the Azure one. I hope so. It wasn't two years ago, <laughs> but yeah, by auto-scaling, I mean auto-scaling of automatically creating more instances of your containers. So in, in Kubernetes land, that, they're called pods. But not only that, the hosted Kubernetes pro- services, they can auto-scale nodes, i.e. the machines that run your containers as well, which is great when you, when you want the flexibility in terms of handling extra load quickly and in response to various factors so in one case i think i've we've had a bit of auto scaling that responded to a number of items in an incoming queue where the containers or their job was to pull items from the queue so the more items there were in the queue the more workers there were dealing with incoming messages for example
1: and so how quickly can that kind of thing scale up and what kind of order of magnitude can you get if your queue gets really full
3: that's entirely up to you, well, up to you and your wallet, I guess. Like,
1: <laughs> so what, what kind of levels did you see in the problem that you were solving?
3: Well, uh, in our problem, we didn't really need to scale the pods up to more than, I think, 15, 20 instances at peak times. And the usual level was about three or four. So that was not a particularly grandiose example.
1: But that's still that's still a four to five times kind of scale up on demand with from what you're saying very little effort required on your part to make that happen. And I think it's it's, it's important not to undersell how hard that would have been five years ago if you were just messing around with the basics on AWS.
2: So I I think auto scaling groups in AWS have been a thing for a really long time, mm-hmm. and they they work and they they are reliable. The thing that's shifted is that if you're spinning up an entire VM, that's going to be relatively slow. So the, the ability to respond to really quick peaks isn't great. Within a Kubernetes cluster, if you have spare capacity, so if your are the total sets of requirements for your various services are less than your available compute, then spinning up things is relatively quick. Spinning up a container is quite easy. It doesn't require anything in a data center. It's, it's a relatively quick thing. There's a, an interesting middle ground that cloud providers let you do of letting they'll manage the number of nodes that are available to your cluster and then you can add more pods within that's in more runtime things so if you end up requesting more compute than is actually available they'll spin up a new virtual machine underneath you add it to your cluster and then kind of go that way so using the autoscaler within a kubernetes cluster lets you kind of manage your spare capacity in a way that you don't get from VMs, you get less flexibility, and from Cloud Run, you don't get the ability to say how much spare capacity you need, really. You you pay for what you're using and have the ability to flex out of that, but you don't have a, like, I know that there's like a 10% variability in how much my service is used, so I may as well commit to paying for that now because it's a bit cheaper, and then have the exact distribution of those services vary
0: thank you, Max and Ollie. I have learned an awful lot, not least that perhaps this is overkill for John's heating challenge that he originally had. But thank you so much, John, for for coming on and co-hosting with me. I don't know if you enjoyed it and you fancy doing it again sometime.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Zoe. And I also have, have learned a lot, particularly around uh, just quite how different the different implementations of containers are these days across different platforms. So, so yes, thank you, Max and Ollie, for all of your wisdom.
0: <laughs> if you have any questions about any of these, technologies and how to apply them in your business and i know i certainly feel like i almost have more questions now than i had at the start Um, get in touch with us via www.software.com or drop us a line on twitter at software uk and i'm at zoe f coming up